Welcome, screensavers. I'm Michael Gallett. I'm Tyler Sitkus. Together, we host the Silver Screen Savers podcast. Unfortunately, today, Matt is unable to join us, and we are going to miss him greatly. But today, we're going to discuss the career of a phenomenal filmmaker, George Miller. Even if you haven't seen a lot of his stuff, listener, stick with us and learn about some of the incredibly cool movies that he has made. And it's all leading up to his newest movie, 3,000 Years of Longing, which is our second Idris Elba movie in a row here in August 2022. We're going to skip weekly watch list this week because we're going to talk about a lot of Miller's movies. Interesting career, George Miller. So he is a native of Queensland, Australia, and way before he's a filmmaker, he studied medicine and was a doctor, right? A lot like the Ken Jeong route of things, doctor to entertainer. Uh, on his off time, he educated himself about film production. He worked on short films, small films, built his relationship like his production partner, Byron Kennedy. You know, when I think of George Miller, I just, I think he's absolutely sublime. He's impressed me so many times in so many different ways. He's an ultimate world builder and he fills his worlds with fascinating characters every time that make the strange worlds easy to swallow because we warm up to them. They act as guides. I'm thinking of Max, obviously, in Mad Max, Mumble and Happy Feet, Babe and Babe. Tyler, what's your relationship to George Miller? So George Miller is a director that I've seen a bunch of movies with him, like, as a kid. And, like, I never really put together, like, hey, this is George Miller. So I was kind of looking through his uh, filmography in preparation for the episode. I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that was him. Um, to me, he's mainly the Mad Max director. I think those are always the movies I like of his. Um, I, I grew up watching, I, I think I've seen, like, the original Mad Max, like, four times. Um, and Fury Road, the most recent one, phenomenal. So he's that's him to me. But he's got a bunch in there that I've seen. I'm just like, wow, I never realized that was George Miller. Yeah, yeah. It's just like incredibly diverse. You know, he impressed me with all these different worlds. And they're all so different from each other. You know, you think about the post-apocalyptic Max world is so different from the Antarctic Happy Feet and the Babe um, and the Witches of Eastwick stuff. But all equally captivating. He deals with a lot of themes, but the one that always sticks out to me is the challenge and practice of having an unbreakable spirit in a cruel world that is doing everything it can to crush your soul, right? His characters, as many heroes are, transcend those circumstances of this unjust place, this terrible setting, uh, just to kind of keep their spirit, keep their soul, that kind of thing. He started out in 1971. He released a short film called Violence in Cinema Part 1, kind of like a documentary, but then his first feature debut was in 1979 with Mad Max. He wrote it with James McCollin. For anyone who doesn't know, it is about a near-future dystopian Australia where the world has broken down due to oil shortages and street gangs have taken over the roads. Cop Max Rockostansky, Rockotansky. Am I saying that right? I think I am. Uh, I forget how his last name is pronounced. They yeah. don't say his last name much in movies. <laughs> they only say it like once in the first one i think um, but mad max and his colleagues attempt to restore order to the roads this you know the energy the oil breakdown stuff and like man's madness human madness because of that um making civilization crazy comes up in his later work so interesting that he started with that what do you think of the original mad max i think mad max was a film that was kind of ahead of its time look how much post-apocalyptic stuff we have now this is kind of an early example, and I think he does a great job of like just creating a world 
that like is so lore heavy, but like you don't need to be fed it. You're just kind of thrown into this world and you have to figure it out. Like some of the uh, the uh, villains of the series are just the strangest uh, thing. Like uh, I can Immortan Joe. I think Immortan like, Joe, humongous, humongous. Yes, he got. Uh, oh, what was the newest one? I can't even think of his name off the top of my head. They have that the was Immortan Joe. Oh, Immortan Joe was the newest. Yeah, one. that was Fury yeah, yeah. Road. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm mixing them up. Yeah, so. He just builds this crazy world that you can get lost in and just kind of feel immersed in while also not, like, being force-fed. Like, this is what happened. This is why everything's like that. And I, I admire that. I kind of like just being thrown into a world and having to kind of figure stuff, stuff out. I think you make a really great point in that, you know, especially this happened for me with Fury Road. You're just, like, looking at everything and no questions asked because you're just taking it all in and, like, getting your bearings as though you're there because it's such a spectacle. Uh, and he's so fantastic about that and all the people that he works with. I think the original is quite fun. Sparked a massive franchise that one, I think we'll be able to talk about more extensively when Furiosa comes out, whenever it is. And two, I think you might disagree with me on this. I think this is one of the only franchise where the first entry is my least favorite one. This one is close with Beyond Thunderdome, though. I think, and I, like, use that as a compliment. First one's a really strong film. I just think it gets so much better from there. You're in disagreement of that, right? I, I, I did not like Beyond Thunderdome as much as the first one. Not that I think it was bad, but it just, I, I hold that one higher up. I think that's fair. I think, and we'll get to it, but the first half of Beyond Thunderdome, I really like, and then I don't like it as much. But in this original, the, the car chasing, the car crashing stuff is really insane, especially considering the low resources that they had at the time. It's so manic and explosive. It really plunges you into this chaotic world. And this one, you know, when you think of Mad Max, you think of the leather and all the crazy outfits and the weapons and stuff. This one kind of begins the aesthetic that we've come to know, you know, all the clothing. It's not like quite there yet because the first one's kind of like near future post-apocalyptic. Uh, so it's not not quite solidified the style. Dramatic stuff is really good, too. Max has a great moment where he's like struggling to articulate how he feels about his wife. And it's a really great relaxed moment that I think another movie like this would ignore. But this one does not. Um, and it leads to more emotional payoff later. It lets you calm down a bit from the crazy violence and, you know, this gang that's doing all this weird kinds of stuff. And this movie and the whole series made a star of Mel Gibson. This was his breakout, huge Hollywood star and filmmaker for a while. Uh, then we learned of his racism, how bigot he was, and all that other stuff, uh, unfortunately. And at the time, this was one of the most profitable films ever. It made They made it for 400 k and it made over a hundred million bucks. You know, it's crazy. It was the the Blair Witch of its time. 1981, we get Mad Max 2, which was released as The Road Warrior in the U.S. Miller wrote this with Terry Hayes and Brian Hannon. This one is about Max finding a civilization in the desert. You know, th this is the template that Max follows throughout the rest of the series. He is roaming around. He finds a new community. He reluctantly helps them fix their problem. Then he leaves to the open road. He does this every time. That's <laughs> but it's like I don't I don't find it any less compelling because the adventure is so good. What do you think of the Road Warrior? The Road Warrior is probably my 
Oh, that's a tough one. I don't know where that falls. That was a really good one. Um, yeah. The Road Warrior was the... Road Warrior is uh, humongous and, yeah, the flamethrowers. The, like, this one really solidifies the aesthetic with the leather, the crazy cost, the big weapon. They have the flamethrowers outside of the compound. The kid with the killer boomerang is in this one. The vehicles are more jacked up. You have the little helicopter thing. I really like that part of it. Uh, I think I think this one is significantly better than the first. And they really put increased resources to good use. I think it's so inventive. It's wild. It's propulsive. I do have one question about Humongous, who I really love as a villain, uh, played by Chell Nilsson. How is he staying that jacked in this world? Like, he's <laughs> ginormous. Not, yeah, there's not much food. and he's How is there that much food? He's getting it all. All the food they find is going to him. He's got to keep that physique. So I'm willing to believe that because, you know, the, the little villainy gang that they were playing at, that they were forming, makes me believe that he really took all the resources for himself. But I, I don't know. I just don't. I don't believe he's that big. Also, what's he lifting? Like, how's he, how's he working the traps? <laughs> He's he's lifting the parts of the cars that they're building. He's lifting them before they build them. You don't think anybody was like, "Hey, you you look great, humongous." Just like uh, maybe you could actually help out with something instead of just <laughs> lifting things up and then putting them back on the ground. Yeah, can you please put this where it belongs? You just kind of kind of inconveniencing us this way. And also, you're just like riding in a car the whole time. So what like what use are you putting your muscle to? <laughs> <laughs> interesting also how uh george miller kind of follows the sam raimi route uh raimi had a different movie for his second movie but you know within his third three movies both of them start a movie that really is super influential on the genre that it is uh miller with mad max and raimi with evil dead and then they just follow it up with a sequel that is even more crazier than the first and really just ramps up all the elements. So that was an interesting connection. After that, does a section in the Twilight Zone, the movie, that's from 1983. That's when four directors, them being John Landis, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante, and George Miller, they each did one segment for the anthology film that was based on the Twilight Zone movie series. Uh, the movie is unfortunately, I would say, most remembered by, I believe, in the John Landis segment where uh, one actor and I believe two children were killed in a helicopter accident, um, which is really just like sick, unfortunate accident, a tragedy um, and, and bad legacy for the movie. And then in 1985, this is when we get Beyond Thunderdome. Miller co-directed with George Ogilvy, written with Terry Hayes. This is the first one made after his producing partner, Byron Kennedy, was killed in a helicopter crash. The movie is dedicated to him. This one has a very interesting plot. Max arrives at a trade town, searching for the camels that were stolen from him. He's hired by the town leader, played by Tina Turner, to assassinate a troublesome pair who run the pig crap workshop underground that powers the town that's how the town gets its power is pigs defecating and max has to assassinate the guys who run that and that's just the first half 
of the movie, right? You can see the wheels starting to come off a little that's bit. <laughs> Just two over the top. A little bit. I like this one. Like I said, the first half is what gets me. Tina Turner as Auntie Entity is really killing it here. Also recorded one of the best movie songs that there has ever been. We don't need another hero. Love that song. Although it, uh, I think it only plays during the end credits, unfortunately. The actual Thunderdome scene, which is this cage match fight to the death with bouncing cables and all these crazy weapons. I think it's the best in the film. And then at the very end of the scene, like flips everything on its head and really messes with your understanding of things in a really interesting way. Uh, the second half involves Max stumbling upon a group of children and their leaders who like have a whole mythos that is explained to the world. I don't think it's super successful. They have an airplane, which is like, oh, cool. There's still modern technology, but it's not not used in the way that I would have hoped. One of the departures that might not make this as strong is that it's not about cars until very late in the movie. And automotive action is, while not only the, the only thing that this series does well, it's like the bedrock of it. It's the driving force. And I think this movie kind of gets rid of the car stuff a little bit too much. Because uh, then we see the return, you know, some odd years later to the cars. Uh, it's... Do you have strong feelings about Beyond Thunderdome? Not really strong. I saw it years ago and just had no desire to return to it. Like, you're like, this isn't the Mad Max I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's definitely like a, I'll watch some scenes in it, but I'm not going to sit and watch the whole thing. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. Uh, in 87, this is kind of the first full feature-length departure from Mad Max. It's The Witches of Eastwick. Uh, this was a solo in skirt. Miller did not write it. This was written by Michael Christopher and is based on the book by John Updike. It's about three women, Cher, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Susan Sarandon as women who conjure up what they think is the perfect man, played by Jack Nicholson. I mean, just like that cast. I, we're, we're never getting that again. That's incredible. It, it's pretty well received. I don't know if it's super remembered amongst his fans. You know, there's some humor in it. It's very heavy on some effects. I think the performances are the really selling element here. Everyone's really firing on all cylinders. It's really cool in this movie. Fun story. Again, you read these things on the internet. You don't know how true they are, so take it with a grain of salt. But I guess Susan Sarandon was originally supposed to play the Cher role, but Cher demanded that role. So Susan Sarandon like, showed up to set not knowing that they had shoved her into another role. So... Kudos to Ms. Sarandon there for pulling off a great performance under those circumstances. 1992, we get Lorenzo's Oil. This is written with Nick Enright. It's based on the true story of Augusto and Michaela Adone, parents whose son Lorenzo is afflicted with ALD, which is damages the myelin sheath that colors nerve cells. It leads to bodily dysfunction and sometimes paralysis because the brain can't properly communicate with the body. Not a lot of this stuff was known at the time he was afflicted with it, and that's basically what the movie is about. Uh, starring Nick Nolte in a reunion with Susan Sarandon. This is a high school movie for me. Saw it in anatomy class. I, it's very well done. It does a good job of showing the really horrible frustration of even the medical world, like top medical minds not knowing what's wrong with your child, the tragedy of that. You know, like of all the knowledge we have, how do you not know what is wrong with my kid? Uh, that, that sort of frustration. It doesn't, you know, the movie doesn't totally sugarcoat, but it is hopeful 
as it goes along and shows that even if in a small way, slow change can be accomplished, which leads to bigger things down the road. Um, and they were nominated for Best Original Screenplay for that one. Have you ever seen a Lorenzo's Oil? I have not seen Lorenzo's Oil. Yeah, it's a pretty good movie. I would recommend it if you're, if you're in the mood for that kind of thing. In 1995, he did not direct, but co-wrote a phenomenal movie, and that is Babe. This was directed by Chris Noonan. It was written by Noonan and Miller. And James Cromwell, who you know from a lot of movies, even if you don't know his name, he plays the farmer. He said there was tension between Noonan and Miller about who was more responsible for the vision of the film. And I think that led to Noonan not returning for Babe Pig in the City. But Babe is based on the book The Sheep Pig by Dick King Smith. It's about an abandoned pig who is rescued by a farmer and attempts to find family on the farm, even though there are no other pigs around. Uh, This film is perfect. As I said, it's phenomenal. The scale of this, the world, the production design by Roger Ford and set decoration by Carrie Brown, just stupendous. Stuff you don't see very often. This movie's hilarious. It is heartfelt. It does, like, real animation of animals. And what I mean by that is not, like, a drawing of an animal, but, like, animating a real-looking pig's mouth is really great stuff, um, better than some of the stuff we even get nowadays. And it was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including two for Miller for Best Picture and Adapted Screenplay, and actually won one for Visual Effects. Can you imagine this? A movie about a talking pig on a farm. They were just like, yeah, Best Picture. We love this thing. The Academy stood up and cheered at that pig. They should have. It's phenomenal. Are you saying it's not phenomenal? I'm not saying it's not phenomenal. I just, just, just make that joke. Uh, after this, he did 40,000 Years of Longing in 1997. This is a, a documentary. It's part of the Century of Cinema series by the British Film Institute. Just like an hour-long doc that focuses on Australian cinema, connects it to lores from various Aboriginal groups and Joseph Campbell's monomyth theory, different storytelling myths and theories and all that kind of stuff. And then in 1998, we just come to just a a real piece of work, Babe Pig in the City. He wrote this with Judy Morris and Mark Lamprell. Miller did direct this one. If Babe is phenomenal, Babe Pig in the City is phenomenal plus. It's they like he surpassed it. He surpassed it. (laughs) It's about Babe and Mrs. Hoggett, who is Farmer Hoggett's wife setting off to a metropolitan city so they can pay off the farm's mortgage after Farmer Hoggett is injured. Uh, Magda Shubansky as Mrs. Hoggett is so funny. She's so poised. She perfectly embodies the role. All the animation is great once again. The city in which this is set is so cool. Babe does not go to Melbourne. He doesn't go to New York City. He doesn't go to Rome. He goes to this amalgamated cosmopolitan landscape which mixes so many cities and stands in for really just a loud chaotic space where there's so much going on that it's very easy to get overwhelmed. In fact, Mad Max seems to have motivated what the people in this city dress and act like because there's a scene where Mrs. Hoggett kind of like goes into a downtown square and everyone's like very oddly dressed and everything's loud and you know people are wrestling and all this crazy stuff that's plays a big part in what i think this movie is actually all about babe gets very deep when you grow up 
and you move on from your small spot on the earth to discover the world is bigger than you thought, like Babe moves from the farm to the crazy city, life gets very difficult. It gets very sad and more complicated than you thought it would be. There's a scene in this movie that is like a sting operation on this animal paradise hotel. It made me flip out. I was so depressed watching it. However, the spirit of Babe tells us that a cruel world is no reason to become cynical or unmotivated and that maintaining kindness and relentless determination might not make everything perfect, but you can carve out your own slice of happiness. There are other movies that deal with this same issue, but not quite as well as this one. I feel very strongly that this movie is an incredible statement about resilience and about this theme. I love it. Also, Stephen Wright plays a chimp, so that's all you need. Have you seen Babe Pig in the City? <laughs> not seen Babe Pig in the City, but now I need Get to. Get on it. Get on it. I am. I am. <laughs> Interestingly, this one was not as well received critically or commercially. I keep thinking about this. It could be that people were tired of the talking animal act. It could be that this isn't as bright and cheery as the first, right? The first one is very, it's almost like you take a book from your childhood, you open up the storybook, and you're you're in the world of babe it's very much that the second one is quite a bit darker you know it's not adult or anything like that um but it's much more mature than the first one and so perhaps that's part of it but i i think they surpassed it surpassed an already perfect movie 2006 staying with animation got happy feet wrote this again with judy morris john collie and warren coleman This movie begins with penguins courting each other while singing Prince's Kiss. And that just sets the tone of the whole thing. It's about a penguin who grows up in a community of singers. He's terrible at singing. But he can dance like nobody's business. I think this movie is sublime. It's so carefully designed. You think about the swimming scene where all the penguins are in the water. You You feel like you're on a roller coaster. There's this graduation night scene where it's like the penguins coming of age. It's outstanding. Do I sound ridiculous saying this? Yes, I don't care. It is. There's something very ethereal about this movie, especially in the later scenes that isn't presented a lot in a lot of other animated movies. You know, Happy Feet is pretty much Rudolph with penguins. Mumble, the main character, is made fun of, and then he goes on a grand odyssey as he matures. And then he comes back... And he helps everybody. It's you know it's pretty much like the Lion King too. Um, organically, this movie organically fits in an environmental destruction message because the whole beginning of the movie is this marvel of the Antarctic natural world. Everything's untouched. It's just penguins, snow, and ice. And then at one point, you quickly see a human excavator, and it seems so out of place and so like offensive which is so effective because you think like this does not belong here in any way it's one of the only animated movies that portrays zoos as like soul-sucking melancholy places which is interesting because a year before we got madagascar which is also about animals who want to get out of their protected lives in a zoo so we were running with that theme in the mid-2000s here uh quick digression where are you on madagascar where am i on it yeah it's just uh, very indifferent to Madagascar. Oh, come on. It's I so liked good. the first one as a kid, but just, I have no desire to go back to Madagascar. 
Like Madagascar. I love the second one, too. Those, those are really good. Third one's pretty bad. Uh, Steve Irwin has a role in Happy Feet, and he did not, you know, lend his energies always to stuff not involving rescuing animals, but there's a crazy sequence in this movie where Mumbles dancing in the zoo leads to human debate about fishing at the poles and, like, environmental effects of human behavior. It's so weird, and it ends so oddly, like no other kid's movie does. Like Babe... It just like follows, it follows this theme of like life going from simplicity to madness as you grow older. Uh, and this won best animated feature that year, which beat out Cars and Monster House, my beloved Monster House. Well, it beat out Cars. That's tough, tough to do. Well, I it was kind of tough to beat Pixar at that point. Fair. Although I do. I'm going to have to fact check this. I do think Shrek beat Monsters, Inc., which was a crazy thing. Love both those movies. I'm going to have to double check. Uh, Happy Feet 2 in 2011. This movie's okay. Not nearly as good. In fact, not very good. Notably, Matt Damon and Brad Pitt are two krill named Will and Bill. Matt Damon is particularly committed to that, and I love him for that. Fun fact. Brad Pitt that year... 2011 was nominated by the Central Ohio Film Critics Association for their Actor of the Year award. Here was, was his body of work, film body of work for that year. Happy, happy Feet, The Tree of Life, the Terrence Malick three-hour just rumination on life all the way back from the dinosaurs, and Moneyball. Happy <laughs> Feet, The Tree of Life, and Moneyball. What a, what a year for Brad Pitt. I love what them all. What a year for Central Ohio's appreciation of Brad Pitt. Yes, thank you, Central what, Ohio. Was Moneyball really 2011? Yeah. I thought that was like 2015. Wow, that's just not, no, not long ago. it was long, long ago. <laughs> uh, he did not win, but who did win? His Tree of Life co-star, Jessica Chastain. Love it. 2015, Mad Max Fury Road, written with Brendan McCarthy and Nico Lathouris is the journey of Max, now played by Tom Hardy, who joins up with Furiosa, Charlize Theron, to escaping Morton Joe, Hugh Keyes Byrne, and his tyrannical society, in which he keeps everyone under his thumb. What do you think of Mad Max Fury Road? So this one was interesting to me, because as someone who liked Mad Max and Mad Max 2 a lot, and didn't really care for the third one, I just was not even, like, remotely, like, intrigued by this. I'm like, oh, they're rebooting Mad Max. Who cares? Like, and with the new actor, I wasn't that interested. Yeah. Then it came out, and everyone was, like, praising it. So I'm like, I gotta see it. I was blown away by this movie. Um, just one of my favorite... I mean, still, one of my favorite modern-day action movies. Um, they're just... Movies aren't doing things... Action movies aren't as exciting as, like, what this movie did. Half the... Like, a a ton of the movie is just a very long car battle. Mm -hmm. And it's phenomenal. It's so good. Like, it's so awesome to watch. Tom Hardy kills it. Charlize Theron is phenomenal in this. Yeah. One of her best roles. Um, And then you get the goofy villains of Immortan Joe. You got the guy on the... uh, (laughs) I forget his name. The fire... The, oh, with, the like, guitar the player? Guitar. Yeah. yeah. Can't think of his name. He, I don't know uh, if he has one. Guitar, I think his guitar name is like guy. the Doof or something. The Doof? 
Yeah, it's something like do. I just know that because Riley Keough ended up marrying him and did an interview about it. That sounds like a 2003 Dane Cook comedy, The Doof. <laughs> now I gotta look it up. So you know, I'll come back in with this. Oh. I'll let you give your thoughts. Okay. Well, while you're while you're looking up the doof, I yeah, I I can't. I, I just I agree with everything. Sorry for stammering. My mind is blown. Like just thinking about this movie, it's an insane feat of design. From Joe's mask to Furiosa's mechanical arm, the bullet teeth, the armored vehicles, the flaming guitar, all that stuff. It would be so easy to get lost in the action and we often do and like this is how you know this is good is like action and car chases i like it's not my favorite thing in movies but i could watch four hours of this stuff it's so crazy but the characters are still strong without like too too much dialogue they didn't have to overwrite this thing i'm not saying it's an intimate character study because it's not but the bond that develops between Max and Furiosa, it's totally believable. And Nicholas Holt's character has a good redemption arc. Again, this one expands, you know, the other Max movies very centered on oil and sort of natural resources. This one focuses on how humans are misused as resources. You know, Morton Joe really wants to own all the women's bodies and keep them to breed with. This was supposed to be made several times since the end of the 20th century, but it his various snags, I'm glad they waited till they did because it came out wonderfully. Nominated for 10 Oscars and was the big winner of the night. This would be the 2016 Oscars. Won six, including costume design, production design, makeup and hairstyling, editing, sound mixing, and sound mix. And Miller was nominated for Best Director. Now, drumroll please, was he called the doof? It's so it's Doof Warrior. Doof Warrior. Doof Warrior, yes. Was he a warrior? He played guitar. He was the Doof Warrior. The Doof Warrior. He played guitar so well Riley Keo made. Oh, okay. I never knew that. What's do you know the actor's name? Uh I forget. Oh. I looked that up. Right. I just I just searched him and didn't bother with the Oh, Coma Doof Warrior, also known as the Doof Warrior. <laughs> he's got, he's I don't got think he's known more. as anything except Flaming Guitar Guy. <laughs> well, that is the career of George Miller. We're going to take a short break and come back with our discussion of 3,000 Years of Longing after a word from our podcast friends. Looking for a podcast all about nerddom? Want a podcast with an emphasis on representation? The Nerd Alternative is the podcast for you. Join me, Ram. Me, Hassan. And me, Levi. Three black British nerds tackling the pop culture we love and sharing why we love them. The Nerd Alternative, a sweet melting pot of all things nerdy. We're back talking about 3,000 years of longing. This is about a solitary narratologist who purchases a bottle in an Istanbul market. When she breaks the top off, a gin emerges promises her three wishes, and tells her stories of the people he has encountered and granted wishes for. Of course, directed by George Miller, written by Miller and Augusta Gore, who is his daughter. And based on the short story, The Jinn and the Nightingale's Eye, by A.S. Bayat, who is, which is part of a larger collection with the same title, all fairy tales. They're all really wonderful. And the, the title story I've read, and it's a really great narrative, um, I think really, really geared towards film adaptation, and we can talk about whether or not that was successful. What did you think of Three Thousand Years of Longing? 
So this movie, he despite being like visually stunning at parts, was just so bland and boring to me. Boring to the point where like sometimes I couldn't even follow what was going on. I'm just like I am not. I cannot get invested in this movie. Like, for for most of it takes place in a hotel room with, like, stories being told at you, and I think that really just broke my immersion of it, into it, like, just because, like, the stories were just, like, I'm trying to follow these individual stories, and, like, as I'm trying to wrap my head around it, it goes to another story, and I'm like, okay, so I'll just forget that one, and, like, I just could not get into it. Yeah, the visuals were good, but it just was a slog to get through. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I totally agree. I wanted to like this movie so badly, I've been hearing about it for a while because it premiered at Cannes. I heard mixed reviews coming out of Cannes, and I thought, oh, maybe it's a little messy, but at least it'll be exciting. Fast forward to when we're sitting in the theater, I could tell pretty early on that there was something amiss. There was there was an energy that was off. There the good bones of a story here. I could see what he was going for. I really like the idea of a djinn you know, telling the story of all the people he's granted wishes to love that idea. And it hurts me to say this, but I agree. It was like boring to the point of unpleasantness. It looks fantastic. It's so beautiful and well designed. It's just like it's a beautiful toy box where nothing interesting is happening. For a movie filled, filled with characters who base their lives on storytelling and pride themselves on their storytelling abilities, I was not captivated by anything here. Even even the acting, you know, Idris Elba, I think, is good as the djinn. I thought he was probably the best part. Tilda Swinton, who I normally love, I, I don't know, I found that her performance didn't really add anything for me. And I kind of, like, I guess that was kind of the point, because her character is supposed to be, like, not devoid of life, but maybe, like, a little lacking in sort of life force or life events. That I don't know. How did you feel about them? I wasn't digging it. So I thought Idris Elba was good. I'll agree with you there. But once again, nothing that pulled me in. I think he did well with what he had. Tilda Swinton was just kind of there for most yeah. of it. Like, she just didn't really do that much. And, like, I didn't find her character interesting in any way. No, I really didn't either. And this movie moves too fast and too slow. Let me start with the good. I think it's filled with good ideas about storytelling. You know, they she, with her friend, is even giving a lecture in the beginning about how existence and the vastness of the world is so overwhelming for our individual minds that we tell stories to make sense of our being and our time on the planet to package the world into manageable chunks, which I think is a great idea. It relates to what Alethea does with her ex-husband. She packs her entire experience with him, all the mixed emotions and resentments and all that stuff with him in a single box and puts it in the basement, right? It's about compartmentalizing things that we can't actually really articulate. But I don't know if this was a strength or a flaw of the movie. This movie does not conveniently package its ideas. It's very all over the place, the mixed narrative. And maybe that goes to, you know, the fact that life is random and there's all these crazy stuff that just makes us go mad. But I don't know. It's, there wasn't, throughout all these stories that Jin tells us, there wasn't a super strong through line for me. Was there for you? 
No, I don't. I don't think there was much strong. Even like uh, even the stories, just as a chunk, were just not strong pieces of storytelling, which is what this whole movie's about. Yeah. They also get into understanding feelings and emotions through stories, which I jive with. It's certainly one of the biggest reasons that I love movies, right? Sometimes you don't really understand something emotionally until you experience it through a character. It's happened to me many times, and I'm sure other people. But, you know, you can have great ideas, but the story does not have any energy. I, I, it just wasn't there for me. I wanted to like it. It's so out of line with the marketing. This is a very patient movie, and I can't help but wonder if there hadn't been the trailer with this crazy music and all the crazy visuals are coming at you one after the other, would I have liked it more if I had known that it's a bit, not even slow, but just like it's it's a calmer movie? Like, what were you expecting going in? So I just want to piggyback off what you brought up with the trailer. And if they play this techno, like, EDM song that's, like, over the top, and they, they stick all the craziest visuals back to back to back frantically. So, like, you're expecting this over-the-top experience. The, the visuals that were in the trailer are all in the movie, but they're so spaced out mm-hmm. that, like, you don't get any of that experience throughout. Like, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a nice visual, but none of that emotion of that franticness they're throwing them at you is ever present in this movie. So I thought the trailer did a really bad job of, like... I mean, it did a good job because, you know, it got me hyped for this movie to see what what was going on. Um, but, like, as what the movie was, it was not an effective trailer because it's nothing like the actual movie. That basically boring man <laughs> just sitting around doing this. Which is not, not, that's not a complaint I lodge against many movies. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. It's all the interesting visuals are presented in the trailer but like the energy does not come through so what's annoying is that once you get to the visuals in the movie you already saw them so many times Mm -hmm. if you've seen the trailer enough times like we have so you're like okay well that's like ruined a little bit for me and then all the stuff in between those visuals is like oh that's just like I'm, i'm just not vibing with it also, I, I really don't get this. I talked to you afterwards about it. So Alethea finds this small bottle in an Istanbul market, and she loves it so much she has an instant connection to it. She is asking the shop owner if she can get it authenticated because she thinks it, it might be ancient. Okay, she wants to get it authenticated. Now, I, I don't know much about this stuff, so correct me if I'm wrong. She brings it back to her hotel room, okay, but starts to clean it with an electric toothbrush? You were just about to get it authenticated, this ancient artifact, and now you're cleaning it with an electric toothbrush. Didn't get that. I don't understand that at all, because, like, don't you want the original condition? Like, like, you don't want to restore an antique and then, like, sell it as an antique. You don't want to clean it off, like. It's so, such a bizarre thing because I don't really see the reasoning behind it. And she could have just as easily dropped it. Like, oh, you yeah. dropped it and the top came off and the gin's coming out. That's true. Yeah, I, I, I really didn't get that. And then once we get to the gin, I felt the conversation does not develop organically at all. That all felt very forced to me. 
it did feel very forced i agree with that yeah alethea does not take too much time to warm up to the existence of the djinn and i only i know they only have so much screen time but she just kind of like accepts it very quickly which i I guess they kind of warm up because she talks about how she's always kind of felt this sort of like supernatural otherworldly presence but when she starts talking about the story of her imaginary friend or her imaginary boy when she was a girl i thought that just came out of nowhere It, it absolutely did she was just like Oh, you're a djinn? Aight, cool. Well, let me tell you, I imagined an imaginary boy when I was a girl. And I kind of get it. You know, it talks about her always feeling this presence, her having a magnetism to these otherworldly figures. It just felt very contrived to me. It did, because she brought it up, like, immediately after meeting him and it just did not feel natural nothing about the interactions feel natural in my opinion when we talk about spoilers we'll talk about later in the movie the whole like late last third of this movie did not feel any like i did not feel anything towards this it did not feel natural at all Mm -mm, no way and yeah also the stuff when he's telling the story is really great like camera movement visual effects all that stuff is really good i thought when they were in the hotel room having the conversations I, I just thought it was odd sometimes like the cuts and the pointing to like them just sitting there while the other person's talking and i'm like i don't know why the camera is pointing at where it is at right now it's it's like a small thing to to pick apart but that really stood out to me when they were in the hotel room yeah. It's like, oh, let's just cut to T- Tilda now, just sitting there listening. I agree with that. It was very bizarre. But, like, it just really highlighted, like, I, like just the fact that you're just watching people in a hotel room. Like, you get this visually impressive story that the stories themselves, like, I did not get, like, I couldn't tell you one character's name out of all the stories he told. Like, I did not care about the characters in these stories. But then it just cut to them, and you're like, oh, yeah. This is just a story I'm being told. Like, <laughs> right. Because, like, narration over it. A ton of narration. And listen, like, all these things can work. People having conversations in hotel rooms, cutting away to different stories, narration. All of it can work. Just didn't think it worked here. I, you know, and as you mentioned, we've been talking about the visual so much. We're getting these, like, fantastical squid creatures and this like animation wheel kaleidoscope and melting bottles and a red mask and king solomon's instrument with like little creatures playing the different parts of it it's all really cool does not serve the story the whole i would say the first 60 percent of the movie is the jinn telling alethea the stories of his imprisonments and the people he's encountered you know we get the sheba and king solomon thing where he's like jealous that King Solomon's courting the woman that he loves. I thought it was okay. It was it was over very quickly. Then we get the two brothers. One of them is more fit to be king and the other one is not. And I, I just, that one lingered for way too long. They also do this thing where they have different storytellers audition for the king, see who he likes the best. And he only likes one of them. And we just get the narration of, 
and he was the only one who could satisfy the king with story. Let's hear a story then. Yeah, that is true. I don't think we even heard him talk, did we? <laughs> no, it was his voice was completely drowned out by the narration. Yeah, that was stupid. Like that's why I could not get engaged. Like the whole thing with this character is that he loves the storyteller, and we don't get any of it. Yeah. It, like, like, why do I care about this if you're not even going to show me it? Like, you're just yes. telling me I'm supposed to care. I, like, I just, I didn't know any of these characters, and I couldn't care. Case in point is sort of like the last story that the Jin tells about Zephyr, played by uh, Borshu Golgadar, who I thought could have been giving a good performance, and this could have been an interesting story of a genius woman who is locked away just as someone's wife. It could have been great if it was told more from her perspective, or it could have been the Jin's perspective, but she had been given like some, some spotlight in the story, but she's not. It's just Jin talking over everything. I, that did not work at all. That for a movie that has such like I mean we've we've beaten it to death now, but for a movie that has such crazy visuals, they do so much just telling you and not showing you. Yeah. And like these characters were nothing because it was just him telling me what I'm like about everything about them. We weren't shown much about them at all. We were told, and I'm just like, stop telling me all this stuff if you're not gonna show me it. Yeah, you're exactly right. All right, we are going to get into spoilers now. If you don't want to hap- know what happens towards the end of 3,000 Years of Longing, this is your chance to tune out and come back to us when you have, because we are going to talk about it. Spoiler warning. If you have not seen the following movie, please go watch that movie and come back or accept the consequences. So after Jin is telling all his stories and they're back in the hotel room, Alethea, who just has received no development up to this point, maybe a little bit, but not very much, which was disappointing to me because in the book, there is more of like a natural progression of him learning more about who she is. Oh, also, I have to say this. Her story about her husband was told in the most generic way possible. (laughs) It was like, we got married, then we got sick of each other. He likes another lady. Like, that was it. That, that was it. It was really bad. Like, they did no development in that. Just, it's just another example of this movie just narrating over everything. Like, they're like, okay, this happened, and then this happened. And right. I'm like, okay, am I supposed to be emotionally invested in that? <laughs> She's so, uh, you're absolutely right. She's so underserved, and you cannot get invested because you're like, I've heard that, like, I've already heard that story nine times today from people that I know. Exactly. And they were, uh, no, nah, it just And that's all they give her. The rest is just Jin telling his story. We don't get anything from her. And then we're supposed to believe all of a sudden she's a changed woman. Yeah. So right after he's done telling the story, she's like, I know what I have to wish for. I think you and I met so that we could love each other. And I love you. And I wish that we can, you know, stay together and all that stuff. It was not one ounce of believable. No. The not... wish is supposed to be her heart's desire. No development of it at all. No. No, no, no. Like, she literally goes from, like, I have no desires to hearing a story and being like, ah, I want to marry you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's it. 
It's like she heard the Bruno Mars song. She's like, yeah, all right, want to marry you. And and for a movie that we got two full acts of just like boring me barely keeping up, we get the the dumbest third act in history. That right, like break was it down. St- okay, so first it, it it starts with her moving back to London. Mm-hmm. She goes back to London to her house. And then we get this interaction, which is, well, we get, first we get that he can hear everything at once. So she keeps putting her head in and being like, whoa, that's crazy that you can hear this. And they do this like four times. Like, we get it. He can hear everything. Yeah. And then she goes out onto her balcony and meets her neighbors who are like these weird, like bigoted women and has the most bizarre conversation with them where they're just like, ah, no foreigners should be coming to live in these lands. Like, I don't know where. It was just like immediately <laughs> racist for no reason. Yeah. And I'm not saying like, that that doesn't exist, but it was just like, it was just like right off the bat. It felt so weird because she's like, oh, how was your trip? And she's like, oh, it was good. And it was like, damn, going to foreign places where foreigners are. That's damn foreign. It's like, what are you, what is going on? And, and there's then, no development of that either. But it gets solved because they think that Idris Elba is attractive. Yeah. <laughs> so, so now they're no longer racist. And she brings them treats from a foreign land, so... Yeah, they eat food and like, wow, food out of this country is good. Like, what? Who? I'm sorry, is there a single racist on this planet that can't, like, be like, food from other countries is good, can be good? Like, I, yeah. And like, the worst part is, is that they're just looking at Elba and then it just fades. You never hear from him again. But they, they, their racism was solved. They're like, wow, that's a handsome man. And yeah. He's just gone from the story. That is the only purpose they served for this story. And I don't understand why 20 minutes was dedicated to these characters. If you took him out, nothing in this movie would have changed. I would have enjoyed the movie more is what would have changed. <laughs> it would have been a shorter movie. Can we talk about the fades to black? In this third act, it was <laughs> every, every ten minutes. It was brutal. There was so many fades, of, and like every time, I thought the movie was over, and I'm like half out of my seat, and then they're like, "Oh no, something else," and I'm like, "Oh my god." There's literally a scene where it fades to black, and then it goes three. So I thought I was gonna say three thousand years <laughs> along, and that's gonna be the end, and then it just goes years later. Yeah, <laughs> come on. Oh no. <laughs> There are so many fades to black, and they're not effective. There's no reason for them other than just, like, to make you think the movie's about to end. That's like, nope, just kidding. Yeah, and he starts to turn to dust because he can't stay, say, he can't stand all the waves in the air, all the technological progress of humanity, which, okay, I'll give it this. It goes with the idea that was presented earlier that, the world turns from magic to science. Once we have scientific explanations for things, our need for magic goes away and we shunt it off for mainly entertainment purposes is kind of what they're saying. So, like, I get it. There's no room for this magical gin in the modern world. So, okay, I can intellectually understand that. Didn't help my enjoyment of the movie at all. And, like, again, it pains me to say all of this. I was so looking forward to this. But it doesn't, you know, doesn't happen. And I also, you know, the nice nice message about, oh, love shouldn't be asked for. It can only be given, not expected. 
you know, it, good stuff. Again, good ideas. My question is, in the very end, when they're in the park and like the soccer ball rolls towards them and he does the trick where he like kicks it against the pole, the light post, and it goes and like immediately back to the one of the teen players. They're not going, how the hell did you do that? They're just like, cool, man. And they run away. They're not even just like, cool, man. Like, whoa. And then they're like, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's like, hey. And then they just walk away. Like, that's normal. Like, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's a physical impossibility. Not only that, but like, Jin himself did not seem surprised. He just acts like he does that all the time. Which, okay, we know that he does because he's a djinn, but they're just like, all right, sweet, back to our game. And that's the end of the movie. This movie really, like, ends with, like, the most confusing, like, he comes to visit me sometime. I'm like, what? 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 What is going on? I thought that was the whole point was he was gone. (laughs) No, because he's gone to live on his own, but he's immortal, so he has time for her. Oh, okay. All right. I was very mentally checked out by this point in the movie. What's the what's what's the story of the neighbors? What's the rest of their life like? They died the next day. <laughs> <laughs> like you know what we like we we accept foreigners and foreign people, and then yeah. they just died in their sleep. They tasted the <laughs> treats. They're like, we've tasted heaven now. <laughs> they just ascended. <laughs> yeah, I just. Oh, man. For the fact that Beast was the more exciting Idris Elba movie of this month is really saying something. This this one disappointed me. I hope that I like it more somewhere down the line. Um, but I'd also just as soon watch Babe Pig in the City again, which everybody should do. Any final thoughts on 3,000 Years of Longing? No, I'm surprised I had that many thoughts on it, to be honest. Yeah. Well, if you, the listener, have any thoughts on George Miller, Mad Max, Babe, Happy Feet, any of it, please write to us at silverscreensaverspod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at screensaverspod. Our Facebook is silverscreensaverspodcast. Please, if you like the show, tell another movie fan, rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, any of those. Uh, Tyler, where can you be found online? Find me on Instagram and Twitter at Tyler Sutkus, and you can find me on Letterboxd at Tyler96. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Michael underscore Gallet, and on Letterboxd at MGallet. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Stay down to bone. Silver Screen Savers podcast was co-created, written, hosted, and produced by Michael Gallet, Tyler Sutkus, and Matt Sturdivant, with additional editing by Matt Sturdivant. Intro music by Charles Michel via Pixabay. Logo designed by Nathan Seidel.